Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the last question. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed a different start to the show. I am finally getting on board the music bandwagon. Uh, it's, it's definitely an experiment, um, like a lot of things are. And, uh, but that's my first uh, foray into it, trying to put some, a couple of different beats, a couple of different sounds into the show, not just for your enjoyment, uh, but to also you know, polish up the presentation a little bit. So far, you know, you, you start the, the playback, you roll right into my voice and you're either with my voice for a while or uh, listening to a guest and me talk for an hour or two. And then a little bit more of my voice at the end. And while that is by and large what the podcast is going to remain as a format, uh, I think music adds a good bit of depth and some character to a show. So anyway, Absolutely let me know what you think of it. If you love it, if you hate it, ask at the lastquestion.blog. As always, the email is open for any questions, comments, feedback. I love to get all of it. I've gotten some great feedback from folks. You can find me online, um, either under enabled word or my name, Arun Chatur, C is in Charlie, H-I-T-T-U-R. Find me just about anywhere and uh, drop me a line. So today's show uh, is awesome. It's I'm excited for it. Um, I know a lot of people say they're excited for every show. I am particularly excited for episodes where I can bring you a guest. Um, and I'm sure you are too, because as much as you may enjoy listening to me go on and on for 30, 45 minutes, an hour, perhaps, uh, I think the episodes where there's two of us, or perhaps in the future, three of us talking about stuff that matters, talking about leadership, talking about how we develop ourselves, talking about how we can see the good in the world, all the things that we've kind of talked about up to this point. I think uh, a show where we are talking and exchanging ideas um, is an important show. It's one to highlight, and it's certainly one that I hope you share if you find value in it. Today's show is going to be great. I have with me today uh, Joey Utah. He is uh, like me, a fellow Air Force veteran, he was a security forces member for, he talks about it in the show, and now, embarrassingly, I can't remember the length of time, I think four to six years, um, been to several different bases, he went overseas and back, um, and has a very interesting story to share, not just about his time on active duty in the Air Force, but beyond that, outside of that, um, I think his story is interesting for a number of reasons. First and foremost, because it is his story. And he and I come from different parts of the country, different backgrounds, different family dynamics. And so already, we've got something that we can learn from each other, and we've got something that we can teach each other. So I met Joey through a mutual connection, Dr. Ali Butler, online, matter of fact. We connected through LinkedIn, and he and I now text back and forth or talk, text back and forth several times a week, uh, holding each other accountable to various things we're doing in our own professional lives. Uh, and then we probably talk live, you know, by phone or Zoom or whatnot every week to every two weeks. So um, if nothing else, 
that proves that social media can be a force for good, right? I've, I've met several people through LinkedIn who I then eventually uh, talked with and worked with in person or have at least talked to, talked with and worked with virtually uh, if we're not in the same local area. So he's an Air Force veteran. He has worked as a coach. He is still uh, very much in the middle of his journey on figuring out not just who he is, what kind of leader he is, um, but also what are those things most important to him in his life and uh, how does he show up and how does he want to show up? He's an introspective guy. Uh, I do my best to ask him some important questions so that uh, not just for his benefit and my benefit, but certainly for your benefit so that you can take something away of value for you as you ask yourself uh, the most important and the most critical questions that you can going about your day. So I'm not going to take up any more time. Uh, I am grateful that you're here with us. I'm grateful to you for joining us. Um, once again, if you've got any feedback, questions, comments, if you love the music, hate the music, want to hear something different, email us at ask at the last question dot blog. And without further ado, my conversation with Joey Utah. Now, now we're recording. Nice. Uh, welcome everybody to the last question. Uh, like you heard in the intro, uh, my friend Joey Utah joins me today uh, live, if you will, from his office in New Jersey. And so uh, I'm not going to spend any more time talking about it. I'll let him introduce himself. Joey, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, brother. And it's, uh, it's an honor to be on here, Arun. I know we talked about doing this for a few months now, so... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Glad we finally I, made it happen. Yeah, I'm excited to see you again. And uh, really, it's an honor for me to have you on. And I really appreciate you taking the time. So let's start. Uh, I asked this question really of everybody. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, if you don't mind introducing yourself to everyone. Where do you come from? Uh, what was Little Joey Utah like as a kid? Uh, and then what are you doing now? What, what's your life been up to now? Oh, man. All right. Well, there's, there's a lot behind it, especially, especially as I was a kid, man, because uh, to be fully transparent. So first of all, my name is Joey Utah, uh, for anyone who doesn't know me. And Arun and I connected about a year ago on LinkedIn. And we both seem to have had some struggles going through our, our military transition. Um, but to kind of give you guys some context, when I, the way I grew up, I grew up in New Jersey, and I had two parents who loved the crap out of me. I grew up in a, a very loving and very loud, at times, Italian family. And the, the three things that I always say that my family gave me that served me well my entire life, to include in the military, was a good work ethic, good discipline, and good manners, right? That was something that was taught to me at a very young age. When I was seven years old, I started working for my father. He owned a, a scented candle business of all things. And uh, what's interesting is in the early 90s, my dad always owned some kind of small business. We were never rich. We were never poor. We were as middle, middle class as, as you could get. And so in the early 90s, his first business was a baseball card shop. And so that was the coolest thing for me as a kid. I got to tell all my friends that. Oh, yeah, that's perfect timing. Yep, yep. 
And so right when I turned seven years old, he transitioned his baseball card shop into a candle store, which, you know, kind of put a damper on, on my social status. <laughs> um, but I started working for him and to make some extra income, what we would do is on weekends, we would drive into New York city and we'd work street fairs. And that's where I really started to learn those, those life skills that I, I just mentioned, you know, working in New York at eight years old in the early 1990s, it was, it was a life experience that I don't think, I don't think I realized then how important it was for me, because to be honest, there was, there was a lot of resentment at times. Um, you know, there was times where I knew as a kid that I was missing out on, on some of my childhood. You know, I wasn't able to go to certain sleepovers and birthday parties on weekends and stuff like that. But I look back now and what my dad gave me was, like I said, the work ethic. We would get into the city around seven o'clock in the morning and it was very like lifting candles. Um, our two main products were votives and mason jars. And so the point I'm trying to make is they were very heavy. It was very yeah. heavy. Yeah, the mason jars work. have to be box after box of just... Yeah. And there was a dozen to a box. And so I was a little kid. I was super excited. You know, I wanted to help my family make more money and, and live a better lifestyle. So as soon as we pulled up, I would hop out, I'd get in the back of the van and just start tossing boxes. And I knew that I was, I was working harder than, you know, other kids that I was growing up with and other people in my family. And the other thing that I, I got from it was the freedom. I really started to appreciate the freedom that I was earning as a kid. My dad would pay me 20 bucks, 30 bucks for the entire day. And I really valued that money because I knew what it took to, to earn it. And then the, the last part of that um, was the discipline. And, you know, my dad was, he was an old school Italian Irish guy from, from Jersey City and manners were everything. And, you know, treating everybody with respect and, you know, it didn't matter what they looked like, what they, what religion they believed in. We, we were taught at a very young age that you treat everybody the same. And so that really ended up serving me really well in my, my entire professional career, um, especially the military, where it's such a, you know, a diverse collection of, of individuals. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I'm just, what led from, what, what, how did he go from baseball cards to scented candles? <laughs> like, where did, that, where did that inspiration come from? That's a good question. I, I have an idea of it. I think it was, he, my dad's somebody who, if something becomes trendy, he latches onto it very quickly. Okay. And I think for whatever reason, I think he, he went down to Tennessee to visit some of my family and he went to an exhibition show to sell some of his baseball cards. And I think he saw someone next to him that was selling candles and, and killing it. And, you know, he, he jumped right into it. So I think that's the whole story, but it's a good question. I, I definitely got to ask him for, for all the details. That's awesome. Okay. What is he, what does he do now or how long did scented candles go before? he picked up on another trend or, or until he moved on to something else. So 
we sold scented candles until about 2003. And we stopped doing those street fairs shortly after 9-11. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the economy kind of took a turn for the worse. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, we transitioned into owning a batting cage for five years. Back to baseball. Okay. Back, back to baseball. <laughs> the man knew what he was passionate about. So I did that for about five years. And, and whenever he started a new business, I was always his right-hand man. I was always right there to, to help him out with it. So that lasted for about five years. Eventually, he started uh, a limousine company and a party bus company. So okay. again, something, I think he went on a, a trip to Atlantic City with a couple friends, realized that he, he loved it, loved the experience, came home that day. And I still remember him saying like very proudly, I'm going to start a limousine company. And it was like, all right, dad, cool. How can I help? <laughs> um, and he still does that. You know, he, he took a break with everything with COVID last year. He ended up selling the party bus because nobody was, you know, nobody was looking to yeah. do trips to Atlantic City or, or New York at the time. So um, he's still doing it, but he's a lot smaller than than he was before his clientele. Yeah. Okay. So this, so the entrepreneurial streak is, that came early for you. Did you, you have siblings, right? Yes. Three older brothers and a sister who's a year younger. Okay. So were you, um, you said you were always his right hand man. Like were the other, were the siblings involved? Did your brothers or sister get involved ever? What did it always end up falling to you? My two oldest brothers were actually much older. They're from my dad's previous marriage um, back in okay. the 70s. So they didn't work for dad. They started their own painting business and they're very successful and they're doing very well for themselves. So my two biological siblings, um, they worked for my dad and my mom at times, but not as much as I did. I was the one who was there every weekend and you know, I really, looking back now, a lot of it was me seeking my dad's approval, I guess yeah. more so than they were. Yeah. So if I worked, I'm just estimating, if I worked half the weekends of the year, my brothers and sisters might've worked, you know, maybe, maybe a quarter, maybe an eighth of what I did. So no, they, they started their own things. My, my brother became a painter and worked for my two older brothers. Okay. And my sister, uh, she was always a hustler too. She got into dental hygiene school for a few years. Yeah. Okay. So. Okay. So, so now take us up to the point where you joined the Air Force. So why? So coming from a family like that and a, and a tradition like that, we're starting a business. I mean, in some families, like in my family, that streak doesn't really exist. So for me, as someone talking through business ideas and this is what I want to do. I, I would say I, I get support, but it's, it's difficult for them. Uh, what's the right word? I don't know. It's difficult for them to empathize probably. So mm-hmm. I, what led you to, what led you down the military route then? Do you have military in the family or where did the idea come from? No, the, the only other person who served in my family was my grandfather who was a world war II vet. And he, I believe he was there right at the end of right at the end of World War II. Um, he didn't talk about it much, 
but he passed early on when I was a teenager. So I didn't really have that shared experience with him. Honestly, the, the biggest thing that motivated me, or I should say inspired me to want to enlist was 9-11. I remember I was 13 years old. It was the first week of eighth grade when, when it happened. And not just, you know, there was a lot of different factors. I had a very personal connection to New York, to the Twin Towers or the World Trade Center, as they're better known. Um, because like I said, when I was going into the city as a kid, there was a lot of things that I didn't like about being there. But something I always looked forward to was, and I have to give my dad a lot of credit for this, because he would give me a lot of free time to walk around and to explore. And, you know, I was literally in my mind, I was like Kevin McAllister from Home Alone. Yeah. <laughs> I was eight years old, just walking through the city. I had 10 bucks in my pocket and I was just in awe looking at all these buildings around me. So it was that. And then unfortunately, my, my best friend in eighth grade, his mother worked in the North Tower and she never came home that day. And so all these things, you know, and then rewatching the footage, you know, that the media was playing over and over as, as sad and tragic as it was. And there was, you know, the majority of my tears were, were, I was just such, so sad and a little bit angry over what happened. But a lot of it was like tears of inspiration, if that makes sense. Cause I just remember the footage of the, the police officers and the fire firefighters just ascending into the building, even after the, the South Tower had collapsed. Yeah. They kept going in, and that was an image that never left my mind. And I made the decision shortly after that, one day I'm going to serve this country. It's either going to be as a firefighter or I'm going to enlist in the military. And no disrespect to police officers because I'm very pro-police. But the irony is, and you know this, Arun, that you know, when I did enlist in the Air Force, the job they gave me was security yep. forces. Right. So it was like, son of a bitch. The one you thing I'd... up a police officer. <laughs> yeah. And the only reason I didn't want to do it is because I was, I knew I wasn't assertive. You know, I felt very intimidated by having to tell people what to do. I just wanted to be a firefighter who, you know, was protecting people in a different way. Yeah. So when did you, when did you go to basic training? I left March 16th, 2010. Okay. And, and what, was, what was the basic training to tech school? What was that first year experience like? And was it what you expected? I mean, did you, did you have much in, in the way of an expectation, you know, since you didn't have military on active or family on active duty rather, mm -hmm. you know, besides the, the memory of your grandfather and, and the history of your grandfather, what were you expecting going in? That's a great question, man. I think I was, at that time in my life, I was really unsure of myself. And I didn't feel like I fit in with where I was in New Jersey. I was having a lot of, a lot of fighting with dad. You know, he was, he was always pushing me to pick a career, you know, do something. Because at the time I was working... I was always working, but I wasn't working in a stable job. And so I think I was just expecting or looking for camaraderie. I was looking to fit in somewhere. 
And I fit in very quickly, I would say. Um, when I got to boot camp, to be honest, the, the physical stuff was very easy for me. I know it sounds a little bit cocky, but I've been someone who's, you know, I was going to the gym since I was 19 years old, five days a week. If anything, the mental, the being away from family yeah. was, was really hard for me. It hit me a lot harder than I thought. But after, after the first few weeks of basic, I kind of figured it out and, and I understood that, you know, the reason I was starting to understand the whole dynamic of why they were breaking us down and why they were yelling at us and everything. It was, it was to better me. And so after I finished uh, my, my two months of, of basic down in San Antonio, they put me and five other guys who were going to security forces training school, got us on a bus and we literally drive half a mile down the road to tech school. Yeah. It's in San Antonio, right? I think it still is too. I think. Yep. yep. The jailhouse in Lackland. And, uh, I loved it, man. Like I said, I, I think I knew I was seeking that connection and, and just fitting in and I did my job very well, you know? So I think all my expectations as far as that goes, were met, were always met. Um, getting to my first duty station in Barksdale Air Base in Louisiana. I mean, I really couldn't have asked for a better assignment. I had really good leadership who, you know, from the junior NCOs through senior leadership, it just seemed like everybody cared about the lower enlisted. And uh, that was really meaningful to me. That was really, you know, because as much as, I was seeking connection. I think I was also, I was looking for validation for my efforts. And sometimes I didn't get that when I was a civilian, you know, I didn't feel like I was as appreciated. And yeah. so when I got to my first assignment, it was two years, uh, working in the, the nuclear field like yourself, only much different missions. I was the yeah. guy who was, who was guarding the, uh, the aircraft and everything. But I felt very at peace. Everything was, I had a little of everything in my life. I had good friends, good support from my leadership. I was very good at my job. I was, you know, winning individual awards, you know, and I was a part of a team. And that was really what mattered more than anything to me was I, I didn't, I wasn't out to prove that I was better than anybody. I was just somebody who always wanted to be my best. And I know that's cliche, but one of the core values in the Air Force was excellence in all we do. And yeah. I, took those, I took those core values to heart, you know, and I really wanted to put my best effort and, and, you know, help the team or the squadron however I could. So what did you, what did you see for yourself at the time? I mean, was your goal, did you have the goal to stay in? Did you want to stay in for any length of time? Did you think you know, did you, some, some airmen I've met who are, by the time I've met them, if they're E4s, E5s, like junior young NCOs, they want to stay in and make chief. And they know that, right? Where were you on that spectrum? I made it, I made up my mind very quickly in the beginning that I was just going to do four years. And, you know, you, you mentioned expectations. My expectations were I'm going to do my four-year enlistment. I'm going to serve honorably. 
and I'm going to come out and become a firefighter in Jersey City. I still had that dream. I didn't let go of it. Yeah. And I did my two years in Louisiana, loved it, did my one-year tour in Korea, and that's where I started to see the, the other side of leadership. But I was still, you know, I still loved what I did. Now, when I got to my third duty station in Tampa, Florida, when I, I remember being on the plane, you know, in route and thinking to myself, all right, I know I'm going to love Tampa. I know I'm going to love the area. I'm a, I'm a Jersey guy. I love the beach. And so I was probably about 70% out the door getting there. Out the door and of the Air Force, you mean? Out the door of the right. Like, yeah, I'm just going to okay. do this one year and finish up, go home and pursue the goal of becoming a firefighter. I was like, I'll give 30%. You know, if leadership is, is awesome, if it was like it was when I was in Louisiana, maybe I'll, I'll consider re-enlisting. And when I got to Tampa, it was the exact opposite of Louisiana, where, you know, senior leadership didn't really care about the lower enlisted guys. You know, especially in my career field, we were at Gates for standing at a, at a gate for 10, 12 hours at a time. Yeah. And the, the, the difference was that leadership. I had leaders in Louisiana who would come out at two in the morning and check on us and, and shoot the shit, talk about sports and working out and, you know, talk about empathy a lot. Right. So yeah. there was a lot of that. There was a lot of appreciation and therefore I wanted to work harder and, and do my best. And not to say I didn't when I was in Tampa, not to say I didn't always show up and, and do my job. I just wasn't as motivated to work hard, to go above and beyond. And I didn't like that. I was very self-aware. And something my dad always told me is do something until it's not fun anymore. And at that point in my career, I realized this is not fun for me. So I actually did consider, um, I was trying to cross train and become, and to become either a recruiter or a chaplain's assistant because I love taking care of, of the troops. You know, I loved yeah. just being there and, and providing that emotional support at times. That was something that I, I think I realized pretty early in my career. Like I said, I wasn't always the most assertive person and I'm still trying to build my skills on, on that but I always knew how to listen to somebody and I could always sense when one of my peers was going through a hard time and they just needed somebody to lean on for a little bit. So that's why I, I entertained that thought for a few months. And then, um, pretty much because I didn't have a line for, for Sergeant, they told me that it was, it was very improbable. So, so you asked your leadership at, in Tampa, Mm -hmm. about the likelihood like you so you were going to apply for recruiter or chaplain's assistant and they said probably not going to happen so don't worry about it exactly so did you did you start the process at all or just take that feedback and say well forget it and then you just let it go yeah it was the second one <laughs> okay so can you unpack a little bit more you said when you got to korea you started to see the other side of leadership mm-hmm and you were coming off at what it sounds like a great assignment at Barksdale. So what else, what do you mean by the other side? And you started to describe it at McDill, or I assume McDill in Tampa. Yep. 
you started to describe it. Um, what else? What else did you see while you were in, in terms of the other side of leadership? What was it that started? What was it actually from coming back from Korea? Because that was a one year. You said what was it that led you to seventy percent out the door? You know, because you're already over that tipping point where. Yeah. Uh, I think the biggest thing that I, I got the sense very early on is, you know, being, being a cop, we, you know, just like any other career in the, in the Air Force, we had our flight chiefs, our senior leadership, and we would do our guard mounts, which is where before we would post out in the field, there'd be whatever, 40 or 50 of us in formation doing our, our getting briefed before, um, making sure that we're all there and we're all accountable. I, I got the sense early that leadership was very self-serving, that they wouldn't, there was a lot of cockiness is probably the easiest way to say it. There was a lot of my senior leaders, they would come out and do our post checks. And I don't know, man, I just, I, I'm comparing it back when I was in Louisiana. I still remember my operations officer, Captain Piernik, coming out on those post checks and talking with us, asking me questions about myself. And very early in Korea, it just felt like all of my flight chiefs were, were trying to prove themselves in some way. And sometimes I got, this is kind of a tangent, but I got bullied when I was younger, Arun. Yeah, a lot in middle school. I got talked down to and I didn't know how to stick up for myself. And I saw some of that from my flight chiefs. I saw them putting the newer guys down who, you know, I think it was like 50% of our, our, of our squadron were cops, were guys who it was their first assignment. So these were very young kids. And I was 22 when I enlisted. I was 25 when I got to Korea. So I'm, I'm mature now mentally and emotionally. And I could see very clearly, like, you know, you're, you're picking on this kid. You're putting him to, like, that's not helping him. And then I would, I tried to do my best to get to know everybody I worked with. You know, you, you stand at a, a post for 10 hours with somebody and, you're either going to not say nothing at all or you're going to talk about everything. Yeah. And so a lot of these guys started to open up with me and pretty much echoed to me how they didn't feel appreciated. They didn't feel like, you know, the, the flight chiefs had their, their back or, you know, some of them were, some of them felt like they were, they were always looking over their shoulder because they thought they were, uh, they were trying to screw them over, get them in trouble. And I couldn't disagree, you know, because I, I sensed that myself. I, I sensed very early when I got to Korea that I had to be very careful with who I talked to. Um, there was a lot of gossiping. There was a lot of, like, I'm all about talking shit and, and teasing and making fun of you because I love you. But I could see very early on that a lot of my leadership would would say some mean stuff about the troops. And, uh, you know, we were talking before before we hit record about yeah. 
it not being productive and yeah. people talking about stuff. And, you know, that was something I saw early on and I started to lose faith in, okay, if, if I have a problem, do I feel safe going to my leadership? And, uh, I'm very grateful because the first five months of my tour in Korea, I was super depressed because I didn't have anybody I could talk to. And then in February of 2013, we got an influx of guys who it was just perfect timing. They, we had so much in common. Um, we, we took care of each other. We were all into playing softball. I, I st you know, I started managing a, a squadron softball team over there and, you know, I, so as much as I can see the negative side of, of leadership in Korea, I, I actually learned a lot. I, I did have a couple leaders who gave me some ownership that I needed. Um, but as far as looking up towards senior leadership and the example they were setting, I mean, you know, I, I remember, so in Korea, as soon as you walk off base, you've got the Songtan strip, which is like a hundred bars, a hundred different bars for, for, you know, all the troops on base. And I remember going there like the first weekend and seeing my chief down there taking shots with, with some of the, the lower enlisted troops in our squadron and just being like, like I knew in my heart, like, that's not right. You're not supposed to be doing that. You know, and maybe what does that say about me? Maybe, yeah. you know, I was looking too into it, but I just, that's not somebody who I want to work for because I, I don't think that's, that's the right thing to do. What was that chief like at work? Was that somebody you would see at guard mount or on base or like, he, was, was he that way all the time or was it a, no, he was, he was not somebody who was visible at work. Um, you know, you'd see him in the squadron hanging out, but he wasn't somebody who would come to guard mount or come out on post checks and make sure that we're all doing good. You know, all, all the lower enlisted guys, ironically, when I went to Tampa, he, he actually came there a month after I got there. And, uh, when I was, while I was in training, he came in and he recognized me and he came right up to me. Oh, Airman Utah. How are you? I'm like, I'm good chief. How you doing? And good, good. And he started telling me some, some of his old glory day stories from Korea. And I remember just standing there thinking, you know, refraining myself from saying yeah. my, my honest thoughts but yeah he was not visible whatsoever in korea who were they go ahead. No, go ahead i was gonna say except at the bars <laughs> yeah except in the, all the wrong places maybe who do you think who were they trying to prove themselves to you, you talked about your senior ncos senior leadership were trying to it seemed like they were trying to prove themselves and i and i think i have an idea of what you mean but to who? What were they trying to prove? That's a great question. I mean, ultimately, I think we're all we're all vulnerable to to getting caught in our ego and to trying to be the cool guy or you know trying to impress people because we want we all want to be well received. We all want to be liked in some way. Yeah. So I had a lot of empathy because. I did talk with some of the flight chiefs and 
you know, some of them I could get the sense early that they, they had their own insecurities. I think, I think they were trying to prove how, how cool they were, you know, um, as, as cheesy as that sounds. I just remember hearing them tell stories of, you know, you ever hear someone tell a story, Arun, and you just know it's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like a lot of that. It was like a lot of telling stories of how they, when they were a young airman, they would go to a bar and if they didn't have a girl picked out by 10 o'clock, you know, or they would always have a girl picked out and, and ready to bring home by 10 o'clock. And it's like, dude, yeah. like you ever see, ever see Billy Madison mm-hmm. when Chris Farley's telling Adam Sandler about how he hooked up with Miss Vaughn and, and Adam Sandler's like, no, nah, that didn't happen. It was like a lot of that. It was very, I don't know, very immature, I guess. But to answer your question, I think they were just trying to prove themselves to us and how cool they were and, it just, it seemed pointless. So let me ask you something else. Cause I, I ran into this. Well, so I ran into the, this type of thing a, a few times on active duty. And then by the time I got to my last assignment working with college kids, um, I would get, I would, I would get into this debate, we'll call it. And I would hear this argument from college kids because we dealt with a lot of hazing issues and some bullying and some harassment and that kind of stuff, which the fact that it's going to happen, you, you kind of, you know, going into a big organization, something like that can happen. And I, I mean, I worked at a huge school too. So, but what do you say? Cause you were talking about, you know, they would say stuff that's mean. It wouldn't be good natured. It wouldn't be from a place of love, right? They were just being mean maybe for the sake of being mean or trying to prove themselves a strong one. So then what do you say to someone who argues, you know, it's a rite of passage, you know, when you show up as the new guy, as a brand new junior airman, especially if it's a new, it's a, if it's a first assignment, right? My job is to toughen you up. It's to beat you up a bit. It's to, um, sand down the edges, what, whatever metaphor euphemism you want to use, right? I, I, I got, I've heard this argument from 35, 40 year old types, like older folks who have been around the military a decade plus. And then I started to get this argument from college kids who were trying to justify, um, you know, forcing people to shotgun beers and, and drink like a gallon's worth of alcohol or whatever, putting them through PT sessions at 2 a.m. on an icy parking garage, like all this type of stuff. And the common thread is it's a rite of passage. It, it means more if you go through pain. Do you, I mean, and, and maybe you agree, maybe there's a spectrum to it, but I'm just trying to understand it because you went through something maybe similar or saw people go through it in a no kidding active duty professional environment. College is one thing. Um, in Korea, on base is a totally different thing. Yeah, well, I do think there's a spectrum. I am. Um, I do think there's a time and place for some hazing and it can be. It can be a rite of passage, I think, and it can also lead to fulfilling the mission, right? Like the mission in the military is very simple. We, we fight wars, we, we do everything we can to, to win. And so part of that means we do have to be mentally, physically, and emotionally tough, or maybe strong is the right word. And so I do think you can get some of that from hazing right and 
at the same time, I think there's a line you can cross where, okay, this isn't hazing. This is bullying now. Like hazing usually stops at some point. And also, I think that in Korea, when you would first get on post, you would go through, what was it called? It was a 30-day combat readiness course mm-hmm. where I don't want to say, you, you know, we didn't, it wasn't like, uh, like Raven School or any kind of special forces where we got the shit beat out of us. But we did have to earn certain privileges. You know, we weren't allowed to do certain things until mm-hmm. we completed that. And so I felt like part of that was, was the, the rite of passage. And I think the big thing with the new guys, what I would have liked to see more is leaders who, after you haze them, pull them aside and, and talk to them about why it's happening, especially if you can sense it. You know, and for me, I could always sense when that kid, the new guy would come in and put his head down or would start being a lot quieter or self or uh, isolating himself. I'd be like, all right, maybe he's not understanding, you know, yeah. when we're, when we're doing our, our handcuffing, right. When I would teach the new guys how to do handcuffing procedures and we'd take it a little bit harder on them, you know, we'd rough them up a little bit more when we're doing the search. Maybe he's not understanding that. I'm doing this to teach him and to actually get him to feel what it's like because, you know, in our career field, things 99% of the time are very calm, but there is that 1% chance where shit pops off. Yeah. And you and have to be ready for that rare moment, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So I think it's a spectrum. I, I just wish that more of our senior leadership would communicate to the, to the younger guys that this is why we're doing it, you know? So I, okay. Yeah. So that to call it a spectrum, I think maybe helps people have a conversation about it. I, when I, so when I first got onto active duty and got into the air force, right, the policy, when we went through training in ROTC, I I can't speak to the way basic training was, but at the time, you know, for ROTC at least, and I think for the for the officer training folks at Maxwell, you would march around in formation, and when you did something stupid or said something stupid, you would drop for push-ups. What, what most people assume would happen, right, in a military training environment, drop and give me 20, that was a real thing. We would drop, I think, up to 50 at a time, uh, and you could end up smoked by lunchtime just because you said tons of stupid stuff or did something stupid. And then... You know, by the time I graduated and moved on, and by the time the couple classes behind us moved on, the Air Force had said, you're not allowed to do physical discipline anymore, right? Because, because people started to, I don't know if it was senior civilians, senior military leadership, I don't know who got involved or started to talk about it. They started to see it as abusive, as hazing. Um, when I was a cadet in college, we could drop each other for push-ups. And the instructors, right, are there to make sure you're not abusing each other. You're not smoking someone past dehydration. You're not, you're not leading somebody to break something. Um, and at the time, I remember thinking, you, you are doing this not just to build up someone's resilience, but you're getting them ready for situations that are going to be physically and mentally much worse in the real world than they're going to be here. 
And then fast forward 12 years and I'm back in that environment and you, the rules were such that when we would take 150 kids into the field house to do PT, to do a workout, we had to have an instructor observing for safety, which is fine. And that, that type of thing has been around for a long time. But when we were young, we would have three or four instructors and they would all work out with us, right? So, and in my mind, I, I thought that was important, right? To see the colonel and the master sergeant working out with us meant something. They would still run with us and do push-ups with us and, and do formation runs outside. So by the time I get back to that job, I show up in PT gear and shorts and a t-shirt and I'm going to like pop formations and run around with them and, you know, see what they're, what's going on and see who the, the fast and the struggling runners are and all that kind of stuff. And I get told, no, I have to show up. So I don't have to, I, I, the, the instructors at that point were showing up in utilities in their regular uniform and they weren't allowed to work out because they had to stand and watch for the hour just in case someone got hurt. And it took me the entire assignment to, to figure out why that would be. Cause I, I always made the argument, like I can, I can pay attention and work out. Like it's not that hard. It's one building. We're all here. If somebody gets hurt, chances are, okay, that's going to react before I will anyway. I mean, nobody wants me to have to run over there looking over their shoulder while they're throwing up in a trash can. Yeah. But it got to the point where they were so afraid of something happening you know, that we, that we had to pull it all the way back. And then anytime a student was accused of hazing or was suspect in some sort of hazing thing, it, it became, you know, we had to send it up the chain and the university got involved and it was a huge investigation. Mm -hmm. So I think the spectrum thing makes sense, but what is it? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if you thought about this maybe, or if, so I'm just going to ask, what, what is it that gets us to a place where, It, it it seems tame or maybe we're just used to it as a rite of passage or teaching moment, like you getting kind of roughing up a new airman on a search mm -hmm. to now. Well, let me actually, let me say this. Let me, this is another example, I guess. And this is already, I'm, uh, how old am I? 30 or so. And I've been in the Air Force six, seven years. And I go to a six month course in Vegas uh, and it's hard training and it's a lot of late nights and a lot of three hours of sleep nights. And when you get to the end, you get a, you get a graduate patch put on your shoulder. And especially if you wear a flight suit or you wear a Velcro, um, the tradition was they put the patch on your shoulder and then they punch you in the shoulder. Right? So like in the old days where they would punch wings on your chest or the, the seals punch the trident or whatever. Right. Um, senior Air Force leadership, like at the four-star level, had to tell the folks at Vegas to stop doing it. To stop punching. To stop punching folks in the arm. Yeah. And a lot of people at the, at the junior tactical level, right in those squadrons got upset about it because it was a tradition and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, punching's not really necessary, but at the same time, everybody that I knew looked forward to it. Yeah. And I just don't know what the answer to that question is. Because it seems like the only answers that we offer ourselves are either it's all or nothing. Yeah. Man, it's, it's something. I mean, as you said that, Arun, I thought uh, every time I started as a, an airman basic, and I, I take a lot of pride because I worked up from one stripe to two stripes to yeah. get in my third stripe. That's huge. 
And I looked forward to those punches. I looked forward to walking the gauntlet because I had earned it in my mind. And it was like, a, it was a tradition. And it was, wasn't anything extreme as far. It's not like, yeah, you get one or two assholes when you're walking the gauntlet who yep. load up, <laughs> yeah. punch you as hard. And you're like, fuck, man, now I got a dead arm for the entire shift. <laughs> but it was never something where I, I saw I saw it get taken too extreme, um, at least with that example. So, you know, I, I don't know if there is a defined line of what is acceptable and what's not, because I think something like that improves morale. I know it did for me and for anybody else who I saw get punched. They were usually, I, I can't remember anybody walking a gauntlet and not coming out of it with a smile on their face. Yeah. Because it was like they earned that, you know? It was a badge of honor, if you will. When you got punched in both arms. Both arms, right? yeah. Yeah, yep. right. So, <laughs> Right. Oh, you guys didn't have to walk a gauntlet? No. Oh, no, we did. So we would – it depended on the unit you were with. In, in ours, everybody would circle up. So the gauntlet really was just a ring. Uh-huh. But the patch only goes – it goes on your left arm. It's bad that I have to think about that. Yep, left arm. So the, the students, the new graduates would just walk around and were getting punched in the same arm over and over and over again. So some people, yeah. they, would, they would wake up the next morning, which was actually graduation day where you get all dressed up and you're in formal dress and stuff. And they had some massive bruises. Mm-hmm. Like my one classmate, I actually didn't bruise that bad. My one classmate, his, his bruise was whole arm down to the elbow. Like he had just... It, it was it was weird that the bigger you were, like the thicker you were, the worse the bruising. Mm-hmm. But there were two of us in the class that were small guys, and it didn't wasn't that bad. But it hurt the next day. It was sore. Mm-hmm. Um, what was his reaction? The guy that you just mentioned with the big bruise was he? He 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 loved every minute of it. He he was looking forward to that moment for like, I think once we got to the six week out point where all of us we're like, we could actually graduate this course. Cause you spend a lot of time thinking you're going to fail out of this course. Yeah. But then you get to a point where the instructors start to treat you as peers and you know, you hit that tipping point where everybody's like, okay, we're, we're pretty much going to graduate unless we do something heinous. Um, I mean, that's all he talked about was we yeah. called it patch night. Right. And you, you get awarded the patch and you get to party with everybody and they, they take turns punching you in the arm and it's like 30, 40 people. Um, and I mean, everybody, nobody, I mean, we kind of made jokes about dreading. I know I made jokes about dreading it because we had a couple of folks in that group and the squadron commander was a, I think he was almost 300 pounds. He was a former power lifter. Like we had a couple people in this group that would come back from the units and they would come for graduation. And some of these dudes were like, yeah, 250, 300 pound linebacker types. And of course they're the ones like, I am going to get you on yeah. patch night and you're like oh, okay fine and in my mind and i'm i'm right i'm 132 i'm five six there's a, a buddy of mine a classmate of mine we're both distance runners we i mean we we can't bench our body weight barely i can't bench my body weight barely and we're like we're so screwed like this is gonna like i'm probably gonna dislocate something <laughs> but i never so the other the other three guys were kind of we had a couple of bigger guys, one just I don't know average size guy whatever that means, and then the two of us that were smaller. I I don't nobody 
we made jokes about it. I was kind of like, it's probably going to hurt like hell, but nobody considered not doing it. Nobody brought up like, Hey, I don't know if this is a good idea or Hey, I'm kind of freaked out about it. I mean, and I don't want to say that it didn't occur to somebody in private. I don't want to make that assumption, but I mean, the dude with the, with the bad bruise, he was showing everybody the next day. Like a bunch of them went out and and did a poolside thing at one of the hotels. This is Vegas, right? And it's, and we graduated in June. So it's already 110 degrees. So they're all out at the pool and the dude's walking around without a shirt on half. His body is blue and he's, he's proud of it. He's proud. Yeah. So I just, it's that type of stuff. You know, I don't know. I know. I, I think it's a good example. I think, you know, we, we live in a, a culture nowadays where uh, I just started reading, re-listening to this book. It's, it's wonderful. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind by yeah. Dr. Jonathan Haidt. Have you read it? Yeah. Okay. It's, so, you, you know, you're familiar with how in, well, as, as Professor Haidt claims, the 1990s is when we started transitioning. Talks a lot about the peanut allergy and how mm-hmm. statistically there's so many cases so many more cases of young children developing a peanut allergy and and his premise is because we're not exposing them right to you know and, and i'm using that as an example of where we're going as a society when we're doing things with good intentions we're trying to create this culture of safetyism and we're in my opinion we're experiencing the backlashes of it now, the negative consequences, meaning that a lot of people, especially young people, I would argue, are not as resilient, not just to peanuts, but to a lot of things because their leaders, and I'm not just talking about parents, I'm talking about people in the military, I'm talking about professors, teachers, they're not exposing them to conflict to things that are going to, in my mind, have a positive output. Meaning, you know, we've talked about jujitsu before, Arun. Yeah, yeah. And you shared that example of how proud uh, that one individual was when he, he got punched in the arm and his arm was all bruised up and he was walking around all proud of it. So when I started jujitsu a year ago, and I haven't done it in a few months because I'm, I'm dealing with this injury, which that's not relevant at all, but, but <laughs> I, um, I remember the first time I rolled and I had all these, these burns all over my body on my, my knees, my shins, my toes, which those are the worst. The ones on the, the inside of the feet suck. Like from the mats? From the mats. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. And I remember talking to one of the guys there and, and he's like, you'll learn to appreciate it. He's like, it sucks now. Cause I remember as soon as we were done, I was like, thank God, my fucking feet are killing me. And it, it lasted, you know, the first few weeks of doing it. And eventually I stopped feeling it as much. I stopped caring about it because I had exposed myself. I don't know if this is making sense, but oh yeah, it's, you know, if you take that on with anything, right. With anything that we're trying to, to learn or to, to get stronger at if we're working on our, our physical strength, right? I, I go to the gym five days a week, not necessarily because I enjoy it. I, I mean, I do, I enjoy the process of, you know, 
proving to myself that I'm, I'm capable of, of overcoming uh, my laziness. Mm-hmm. But I always look forward to how good I'm going to feel when it's done, how much stronger I'm going to feel, how much more focused I'm going to feel mentally. And I feel like as a culture, we've gotten away from that. Like you just share that example of them, not the military, not letting instructors smoke or, or force people to do PT. Or, and it's like, what, what are we doing guys? That was my first thought is why, why would you stop somebody from doing pushups? If one, the output is going to be, maybe you're correcting a behavior, right? Maybe they were doing something that they weren't supposed to, or that could be detri- detrimental to fulfilling the mission. And so make them do some pushups so that they learn. And then the second part is you're getting physically stronger. I just think that's a little counterproductive. I mean, I think, and I know there, this was happening even, well, this has probably been happening forever. You, you will have people that abuse the power. Sure. Right. Sure. So they're going to pick somebody out. Like I pick you out of a lineup of 50 people. And I, for whatever reason, Utah always gets dropped. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter what we're doing. We always take it out on him or we've picked you out because we think you you're weak and we want you to drop the course or whatever the case is. I think the part, the, the feeling I always get or the thought I always have is that we're always, the tendency is always to throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? So I don't, I don't, the, the majority of folks, either they got something out of it or they were indifferent to the physical discipline idea, drop for 20 pushups. I mean, not that I wanted to keep dropping, but I didn't, I, I didn't really resent them for dropping me. I, I knew walking in the door, like you're going to get dropped for stuff. You're not going to know why you just got to get through it. It's not, yeah. it's not personal. And for the vast majority of trainers, instructors, folks that I, that I knew it wasn't personal, mm-hmm. but for some reason we, we can't, I don't know if it's can't or won't, we won't deal with the ones that do make it personal and abuse it. Cause I, cause I don't think if you're going to walk up to a, a formation of 50 new airmen or 50 cadets or whatever it is. Like if I'm coming at you and for some reason I don't like you and I'm picking you out, that's not the way to go. I don't think then I, then I deserve some sort of accountability punishment. I need to be pulled out of that environment before I do something to hurt you. Yeah. But we can't separate that. It doesn't seem like. Yeah. At least maybe in the middle. I mean, this isn't just a military thing, but that tends to be the context where it's, I don't know simplest to think about or I, I will say your your point about resilience I so working with college kids taught me a lot and especially going from 25 to 30 year olds to 18 to 21 year olds mm-hmm. that was that was a shock that I knew was coming but I didn't know all the ways it would happen and the one story that sticks out to me is this we had one student that she wanted help moving dorms um, and talking about a whole lot of stress between the roommates. And we said, okay, and we'll, we'll provide input when it's significant. We had some people that were at physical risk. And so we work with the university and we get them moved. This person's case, the roommate put a rug down in the room mm-hmm. and it was spilling over onto into her side of the room Mm -hmm. and she didn't know what to do. She had asked her to move the rug and she wouldn't, the the roommate wouldn't move the rug. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And uh, it was stressing her to the point where she didn't know what else to do. And she wanted us to force the school to move her. And I just didn't. I remember th- my first thought was when I was in their shoes 15 years ago, which you never want to do, I guess, right? Back in my day, <laughs> I would never have dreamt of taking something like that to an instructor. I just would have. Ask the person. It wouldn't even have occurred to me. Well, I, I guess they talked about it, and but the roommate was stubborn about it. Or, hmm. you know, ROTC, ROTC kids, if they're roommates with, with kids who aren't ROTC, right? One of the first rubbing points is the, the ROTC kids getting up at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. to go to a workout or something. Mm-hmm. And the other kid was up till 3 a.m. doing homework, playing video games, right? So there's natural friction anytime you're rooming with somebody else. So I don't know if that was it, or I, I don't know all the details to it. So I don't want to make assumptions, but I, I know that from what our student told us, mm-hmm. she brought it up and the roommate just didn't want to hear about it. Hmm. And I'm like, there, there had to have been steps in between. Yeah. Right. There had to have been something else in between. Yeah. I, I don't know. That, that wasn't really going anywhere. I just, I, whenever I have a, whenever I talk to somebody about resilience, I think back to that story and a couple similar to it where I, I just don't, when I was 18, 19, 20, I, you know, and, and you know, a lot of this, right. By the time, and I, and I grew up in a lot of ways privileged, right. I, I grew up in a safe home, really didn't have any issues with my parents. Right. I said and did dumb things as a kid, but it, you know, grew up with both my parents through eighth grade. My mom died. I went into high school, I've been through some rough stuff, but so by the time I get to college, right, things could be way worse than a fight with my roommate, but fast forward 15 years. Yeah. And it's like, that's the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's hard to, it's really hard to look someone in the eye, especially when they're that much younger than you and be like, yeah. is this really that big of a deal? <laughs> because it is. Yeah. But you had experiences that were different and as much as you might have been privileged, you definitely dealt with more conflict, I would say, or, you know, I, I know your story, Arun, of, of your mom passing and you having to step into that, that leadership role. And that's something that, shit, man, if nobody's there, I was trying to put myself in your shoes when I, when I first heard that. And I'm like, dude, I don't, I don't know what I would have done in that situation. But then I started thinking, just like I, I do with myself, like how I always try to find the good in, in things that I was exposed to at a young age. Like I said, I, I worked, I missed a lot of things that I wanted to do as a kid, because in my mind, my parents were exposing me to conflict. I was doing things I didn't want to do at times. Yeah. And now I look back and I'm so frigging grateful because I'm able to see that there's not a lot that bothers me. I mean, I definitely have my pet peeves like anybody else, but dealing with people outside of my family, because as you know, the people who have the power to hurt you the most are the ones closest to you. Yeah. But dealing with people when I was in the military, when I was in college afterward, it was very hard for something that somebody said or did to upset me. And also I was always big on setting a boundary. You know, if I had a roommate, Actually, I did when I was when I was in Louisiana. I had a roommate uh, or a suite mate. We shared a kitchen and a bathroom, and there was times where he left dishes in the sink, and that wasn't okay by me because they could come in and do a random dorm inspection anytime. Oh yeah, yep, if, that's right. 
If they catch a dirty kitchen, we both fail. And it wasn't even a question in my mind that I was, I wasn't going to knock on this door and, Hey buddy, would you mind, you know, I, sometimes they do surprise dorm inspections. I noticed you left some dishes in the sink, you know, would you mind um, cleaning them up so we don't get in trouble? And it was no problem. There was no, no fight back or, or anything. I think a lot of that, a lot of what's not being taught to kids is the, the communication, communication tools to, to deal with conflict and the resiliency tools. You know, everybody wants to just go and knock on their, their teacher's door or tell somebody else instead of just handling it themselves. And I actually, I had an experience. So after I came out of the military at the end of 2014, the firefighter thing didn't work out, didn't know what I want to do with my life. So I went back to college using the GI Bill and there was one incident I had that really kind of changed my outlook on, on everything and really opened my eyes to what, what the problem is with these young students. So I was up at um, Montclair State, which is in North New Jersey. And I was doing really well, passing all my classes, getting along with my classmates. And I was always the, the curious kid. You know how they always say, there's no such thing as a dumb question? Yeah. Well, if there is, I was the kid who asked it. You're going to find it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to find it. <laughs> Even when I was in the military, I would always get razzed for that. And that was okay. I never, you know, for me, it always prepared me for whatever was to come. So I'm in college and the irony is I'm in this class that was called Intro to Rhetorical Theory and Debate. And basically we're learning about guys like Plato and Aristotle and oh, yeah. how we're supposed to we're supposed to talk through disagreement and, and conflict to find the best solutions for society. And you and I were talking about this before the podcast, before yep. we record it yeah. about how that can be very productive. So I'm in class one day and we get assigned to, um, we had a group project that was due at the end of the semester. So the teacher breaks us up into, uh, into our groups to talk about our topic. And so our topic that she chose for us was, was gun violence or gun safety, whatever it was. And then it was up to the, the five of us to determine an exigence, which is like what in particular that relates to, to guns do we want to write our paper about? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so we start, you know, we each, we each go around and, and my thing, I was kind of the moderator. I was like, guys, would it be all right if we all talked about what we want to possibly write about and then we'll vote on it at the end there's five of us and everybody agreed so we go around you know all, all four the four other individuals talked about what they wanted to, to write about and it gets to me and this is where it gets a little bit touchy because this is march of 2018 it was right after the parkland shooting happened down okay, in Florida. yeah very tragic story very very sad um so it got to me, and I'm not ashamed to admit this, at 30 years old, I didn't know anything about guns. I was, even though I had my experience in the military, and my friends always make fun of me for it to this day, I knew, how to, I knew, I knew everything about my M4 rifle, 
and my M9 Beretta because I carried it every day. But I didn't know the laws and what was right, what was wrong. Anyway. Well, it wasn't a hobby of yours outside. You weren't a, a gun guy, quote unquote. Exactly. Sure. Okay. So I propose, because I remember seeing a few posts on social media about how the one common thread, because there was several other mass shootings that were happening um, the last few years. And the one thing that they all seemed to have in common was the shooter always had some kind of psychological disorder or was on some kind of medication. And at the time, 2018, I was just starting to acknowledge some of my demons. I was just going back to therapy again. So I was very interested in knowing, like, why is this happening? And so my proposal was, I want to, I, I, I remember saying to the group, I would like to look at the correlation between these mass shooters and what their psychological disorders are. And I swear to God, Arun, I didn't even get 10 seconds into saying it. And one of the, the individuals in my group just started I'm trying to think of a polite way to say it. <laughs> started freaking out for lack of better words. Okay. And I got called words like gross. I got called disgusting. I got called insensitive. And, you know, my, my character was attacked. And so I just sat there and, you know, bit my fist and reminded myself like, Joe, don't say anything back. Don't, you know, cause I have my, I had my temper yeah. that I still hadn't really dealt with. I yeah. had my anger issues. So I sat there, teacher comes over, long story short. Well, first of all, she repeated everything she had told me to the teacher about what she thought of me. Long story short, we get separated into different groups. I think I volunteered, you know, because she knew there was a conflict between myself and the other individual. So you have to leave the group? So I, yes. Yep. Okay. And I volunteered. She said, well, guys, if we can't get along or if this is going to be a, a hard issue, I raised my hand. I was like, professor, you know, I didn't mean to disrespect anybody. I'll go in the inequality over education group or whatever it was. So no problem because there was a conflict with that individual. Sure. So I come into class two weeks later and this is what really pissed me off was I'm in my new group and the group that I was previously in changed their topic. They were no longer talking about gun violence because it was too sensitive for that one individual. So my logic, now I'm starting to really understand what's going on. And I should also say that even though I was three semesters away from graduating, I was, I was having a hard time. Like I didn't see the, what it was leading to, right? I didn't feel like my professors in school was setting me up for the tools that I needed to be successful after graduation. So it was a lot of that was starting to build up a lot yeah. of personal frustration, but then it was like, well, you know, especially with it being a debate class, like professor, why are you not letting these kids talk about something that's, that's a little bit, you know, it, it is, there is some conflict in it. And I had a personal yeah. conversation with her and she patronized me. And in my mind, she told me, well, Joe, you did a good job at composing yourself and, and all that. And I was like, I get it. 
but you're, you're doing these students a disservice because they need to be talking about things that they're not comfortable with. And I'm not saying I had the right answer that day. Yeah. Oh yeah. But, but that was the first time where I started to open up my eyes and I started realizing that some of my professors at that school, in my mind, they had an agenda. And like I said, I, I felt like they weren't exposing us to the things that we needed to know. And they weren't teaching us the, the communication skills that we needed to have these uncomfortable dialogues at times. Right. And the fact that her behavior was never like, she was never made to apologize when it was, dude, it was one of the most awkward moments of my life. <laughs> like I'm sitting there getting called these names. Everybody in the class is looking and I, I'm very self-aware. I know like, you know, I'm the, the white male, I'm, you know, the military guy here and everybody's looking at me and you're probably the oldest in the class, oldest, oldest in the, in the class. class by a lot. Yeah. Yep. And so it was, it was very uncomfortable. And I think that there was a lot of things that went wrong in that particular situation. And the first one was that that student wasn't taught to, um, to be more responsible with, with her words, you know, and to not, especially for it being a debate class, rule number one, attack the idea, not the character. And the fact that that was allowed to happen in front of so many other people, it was just like, all right, I don't need this. Like, you know, and like I said, I was dealing with my own shit at the time, but, uh, yeah, I mean, all of them were, but so that was that rule. Number one, that was the rule of the class or the professor had put that out. Like did, did the professor put that out like in the syllabus or on the first day attack the idea, not the person. It was somewhere. I, I don't remember. Yeah. It wasn't rule number one. You know, I was, um, kind of summing that up but it was well, i think that's that's a good rule number one to have i just think it's that much more well you already said it was ironic it, it's even more so i think if you know if that was the professor's message and then yeah and it was the yeah. exact opposite and that was the rule for the debate class so the same teacher who ran that class ran debate ran uh the debate club mm -hmm. and i showed up for it two times and that was something that was mentioned a few times, you know, that we don't attack each other personally, we yeah. attack the idea. So maybe not in particular to that class. Yeah, I see what you're saying. But it was the same, you know, the class was in alignment with, with debate club. So I know it's a, <laughs> it was a whole long story, but I just feel like no, that's a I, on the whole, you know, young people today and even even some older people who I know just have no idea how to have a, a respectful conversation with people who they disagree with, period. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And we, yeah, talking, talking off air, pre-recording about it, you, you and I have definitely seen it happen a number of times. So you, so we'll bring it back to you here for a bit. You are in college post Air Force. And you said three semesters away, you were already, you were starting to wonder what this was all leading towards. So what was, so how, so ultimately did you get out of the Air Force because you didn't, did you lose faith in leadership? Did you not see yourself staying in longer? Was there something on the outside pulling you away? I guess the, the simple way to ask this, cause I've, this is how I characterize it for me. Um, was something pulling you away or did the Air Force push you away? 
think it was more so the pulling away, if I'm being honest. I think it was, like I said, I was about 70% ready to get out. I, I want to move back to New Jersey. I want to be closer to my family again. And at the same time, there was that possibility of, of staying in, but not feeling, I think you said it well, not having faith in my leadership. And also it's ironic because we were just talking about safetyism and yeah. how, but I also do believe in, I do believe leaders need to do a better job at creating an environment where their employees or their troops do feel psychologically safe to go to them if they had an issue. And I didn't have that when I was in Florida in any way. I had it as much as I kind of said some of the bad stuff I saw in Korea. I did have two or three leaders who looked out for me yeah. and who I knew I could go to when I had my little issues. Um, I didn't have any of that in Tampa. And I was just like, anytime I walked in the squadron, it was like I had to look over my shoulder because I knew some of the stuff that was happening. And it was like, I'm just going to do my job. I'm going to, you know, whenever I, I went to work, I was always good at leaving my personal feelings or whatever conflict I was dealing with at the door. Um, as soon as I crossed the lines into work and I was armed up, it was like, I'm being super professional. I'm not doing anything to get in trouble, you know, yep. and, and that was pretty much where it ended. So but what yeah. did you, what kind of work did you do for yourself? What kind of prep did you do before you separated? <laughs> like what was, what was transition like before, during, uh, and after in the immediate aftermath? It was like a phone call to my dad. Like, Hey dad, is it cool if I move back in with you guys <laughs> until the until the, uh, the civil service test comes out in 2015? Yeah, of course, Joey. All right, cool. That was, that was the short of it. Cause I did still have that goal. I still, yeah. Firefighter at the time right? thought I wanted to exactly. Yeah. Um, but no, man, I mean, it's, it's, I know we've talked about it and, and hearing your story and it's something that I've really changed my whole attitude on these last few years about how important it is for the individual, the transition and service member to take ownership of their journey. Not even, you know, you said we, we've had the conversation of is thinking one year ahead too soon. I, I don't think so. I think you've got to be thinking about it at maybe two, three years, maybe even more, you know, it's, it's always good to, to know what your options are because um, as we know, as much job security as there can be in the military, there's nothing's guaranteed. Nope. And you know, when I, when I was getting out in 2014, it was shortly after the whole sequestration thing had taken place. And a lot of guys were getting pushed toward early retirement for having fours on their EPRs, which for anyone, anyone who's civilian who's listening, you get an annual report card, so to speak of one to five. And I knew guys who had gotten fives their entire career, mm -hmm. but because they had gotten a four the last year, they were getting bumped out and it was like, whoa. So anyway, I, I share that because I, I don't think anything is guaranteed and I don't think there's ever anything wrong with 
knowing your options and starting to, to network. I think that's one of the most important factors, starting to talk to people who are on the outside, who have successfully transitioned and, you know, have conversations and, and explore what's, what's really possible because I'll say this, and there might be some resentment behind this, Arun, but I've talked to a lot of guys who have gone through the TAP program, mm -hmm. the transition assistance program that the military sends you through, and it's not effective. And I don't want to sound too bitter because at the end of the day, yes, I can sit here and say the military needs to do better at providing you with the resources. The military needs to do better at sitting you down and having these conversations with you about what's next for Airman Utah or for Captain Shatar? Like what, what do you, who are you and what do you really want to do next? At the same time, nobody's going to come and save you no matter where you're at. There's, there's people who want to help you. Yeah. There's, oh, yeah. there's a lot of people out there, but don't expect others, whether it's the military or tap mom and dad or whoever, to do things for you. You really got to own your, your, you need to own your own journey as uh, Herb Thompson always says. Yep. That's exactly who I thought of. I always think of it whenever I say that phrase. So, so how, did, to Herb. how did you start? Cause networking, it's taken me a long time to not see networking as a four letter word. And I, and I don't want to blame people. People kind of think it, I mean, we don't, people think it's because of a, the military experience, right? Or, or we, we treat it as a four letter word, but the reality is at least in the air force and at least on the officer side, there's tons of networking, political maneuvering that to be honest is part of why I think of it as a four letter word. So for you, so how did you start? Cause you and I met on LinkedIn through a mutual connection through Allie. Um, Dr. Alley. Dr. Butler, excuse me. Yeah. And, and, and arguably that was a positive uh, example of what networking means, right? She saw something in common between the two of us, sent out a three-way message, and then, you know, away we went and we started to talk to each other. So how did you start to do that? And well, yeah, literally, how did you start to do that? Right? Because I was, had I not had a couple of people like Allie already civilian and connected to other civilians and other veterans who had gone through it, you know, I wouldn't have known where else to start. Yeah. So this is going to sound crazy, man, but it was through network marketing is how I first got into anything to do with social media, sharing my story, network and all that stuff. So around 2017, 2018, when I was, starting to realize that college was not leading to my happiness to be totally blunt. Um, I kind of had, a, a, I really hit a personal low point, you know, about to turn 30 and realizing that I wasn't fulfilled in my professional or personal life. And so my big takeaway from that experience was that I needed to be more open-minded to all the possibilities in my professional life, you know, because it was like, all right, Joe, college isn't working. The firefighter thing isn't working. I, I wasn't thinking about reenlisting in the Air Force. It was like, you need to be more open, dude. And so I just, I just so happened to have a friend who did network marketing as a health coach. And um, 
man, I can't even tell you how many times I'd been offered to do it by one of my friends and Joe, you'd be great at it. You're so personable. You'd be a natural salesman. And it was like, ugh, you know, there's <laughs> sales. That's another, yeah, it's another four letter word, but yeah. It was sales, but specifically network marketing because I thought it was all a pyramid scheme. Right. And I don't want to disparage the industry because it's what introduced me into the coaching. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, that was the first time I started using social media to connect with others. I started sharing my story and my journey, what I was going through, um, both personally and professionally. Not so much on LinkedIn. At the time, I was on Facebook and I was talking about some of my mental health issues and some of the things I was going through and also the things I was doing to help myself, how I was working out more. I was starting to go to therapy and that led me to some really great individuals and organizations. Um, I know this isn't on video, but I'm wearing a recalibrate oh, yeah. USA shirt right now. And they're a, a nonprofit that's based here in New Jersey that does a lot of great work for veterans and first responders. And I wouldn't have connected with them without social media and sharing my story and then going one step further, messaging the president and just talking to him, you know, just, Hey, I really like what you guys are doing. I would love to help out. I'd love to, to be a part of helping other veterans in any way. And so, um, you know, shout out to my good friend, Johnny Roth, because if it wasn't for me reaching out to them, and all of the resources and, and the wonderful people who they led me to, then, you know, I'd be in a much different place in my life right now. But that also, you know, I have to give myself a lot of credit because as much as somebody can tell you, and for anyone listening, you know, I can sit here and tell you, okay, this is how you network, you know, figure out what industry you're interested in, go on LinkedIn, do a search for that industry for other individuals who work in it, send them a connection request with a personal invite, use a little bit of empathy, you know, uh, look at something that they wrote on their most recent post or in their biography and talk about it and, and create that initial connection and then hop on a phone call. I mean, that's very similar. I know Ali introduced you and I, Arun, but mm -hmm. that's kind of how this all went down is we were just two guys on LinkedIn uh, you had expressed to me you were interested in getting into online coaching. I was just kind of starting my newest venture at the time. And we just, we hopped on a call and you've helped me in a, in a lot of ways. I, I hope, you know, I like to think that I've added some value to you, your life in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think that's where the difference of just telling somebody you need to talk to people, you need to network. Like start with who, start with asking yourself the, the hard questions that other people aren't asking you. Who am I at my core? You know, what, what are my passions in life? What are industries that I'm interested in? And I know this is like a buzzword at the moment, but be authentic. Yeah. <laughs> I know everybody it's says the, it. Uh, yeah. Be yourself, man. I can't, I can't say it in any other way. Doesn't and make it less true. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And so that's where, that's kind of how I've ended up in the, the veteran advocacy space. And a lot of it too is just being vulnerable. 
which isn't a buzzword, but <laughs> it's something that a lot of people don't want to hear at times. And the way I, I look at vulnerability, I used to, you know, not just coming from the military, also coming from a very large and loving Italian family. We never talked about emotions. We never talked about feelings or being vulnerable. What the hell? That was yeah. always, in my perception, that was weakness. And I've since done a complete 180 and realized that it takes a really strong person to open up and to share their truth. And I don't necessarily mean talking about depression or asking for help for you know going to therapy. I mean, if you're willing to share your honest thoughts about any topic on social media, on a podcast, as you're doing right now, Arun, that takes courage because there's going to be people who disagree. There's going to be people who might dislike you after they hear it. Yeah. And, you know, you're stepping into the unknown. So whether that's, you know, again, doing this podcast, having a conversation with some guy you've never met before who maybe could help you out, that takes courage. And I'm a big advocate for that, you know, for yourself, because nobody's going to do it for you. So no one's going to save you. No one's going to save you. At the end of the day, no one's going to save you. Yeah, the, the connection request. So I didn't even get that at, at TAP. I think some people may have, right? But for those who don't know, TAP is, uh, we're always told it's congressionally mandated because that's how they guilt you into going because you, no one wants to do it. I've never met someone who wanted to do it because it's the reputation on active duty is, at least in the Air Force, is pretty bad. Um. Death by PowerPoint for... Because it's not effective. Yeah. For two for weeks. A, yeah. For a week. Mine was a week and a a week and then three extra days, but it was all virtual. Mm. And I don't know. I mean, it's sad to say I'm exceedingly grateful I got to do tap virtually because I was in my house and I could do other stuff while it was happening, right? Because normally, like when, my, when Maggie went through it, when my wife went through it in 13 uh, and for most people who have gone through it, that you go into a room in the Airman and Family Readiness Center and you are sitting there getting killed by PowerPoint for a week or two weeks. Um, but like the idea of, so I had a LinkedIn profile, but the idea of reaching out and connecting to a total stranger, never in a million years until I talked to Allie um, and then started to talk to you and I talked to a couple of other people and, and, just exercise the muscle talking to people who were genuinely interesting, you know, or who were in the space I wanted to be in, or yeah, I caught something on their profile. They volunteered somewhere where I wanted to volunteer, that kind of thing. Um, but before then, right before like fall 20, never in a million years would I have, that's not what I thought it was for. That's not, I don't know. It didn't just didn't come naturally. Why was that? Do you think you were, like, like anxious about it or did you just not see that it was possible to, to use this, this LinkedIn tool as, as a way to connect with people who might be able to help? I, I didn't. So I always assumed that it would appear self-serving and part of it was, you know, I was afraid I was just doing it to be self-serving. So I didn't, 
there, there are, I mean, to this day, there are people that I, that I find that I, I would love to connect to and talk to just to, to listen to what their story was. But at the same time, I think, I think I was afraid they would look at me as being just self-serving or I'm trying to ask for a favor. I think at the time I interpreted it as that is what you're doing. Right. So I, I was afraid that's what I was doing and I was afraid that's what anybody was doing. And so I just didn't want to get sucked into it. Um, and like you, I was on Facebook and I, I've been on Facebook for years, right. Since it's, since whatever, Oh six, Oh seven. Um, but on there, it's really, you know, it was advertised to stay connected with your high school classmates 30 years from now. Okay. And then, so it's a lot of family and pictures and vacations and whatever. On the LinkedIn side, it is much more of a professional presentation and it's, it's professional networking and businesses and that kind of thing. And for me, I was like, I don't know that that, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. I need to get a job and make some money so that we can pay our mortgage. Right. And that, and it's just very linear and instrumental and, and I really didn't have an appreciation for it until, yeah, talking to folks who had separated ahead of me. And even now it's still, I mean, there's also a good bit, I'm just afraid of rejection like a lot of people mm -hmm. i i mean yeah uh, even if even if i do everything right and i follow every one of those steps mm -hmm. that you laid out you know still getting a message which i have i have never gotten a message back that was stop bugging me this is annoying i don't want to talk to you right no i think the easy thing is people just ignore you right like you just never get accept the the thing accepted which is fine um but yeah, I don't know. I think, I guess I just assumed that I would somehow offend this person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I, I, I can definitely relate with that. And that fear of rejection is real of what if this person just doesn't answer me or what if they send me a message like, Hey, you know, like you said, stop bugging me. Yeah. But what I would say for myself is I've, I've done a lot of the fear work and I've really done my best this last year to understand what, what my limiting beliefs are. And one of them was that idea that it's self-serving for me to ask somebody for help. And this is going to sound super cheesy, but one of the greatest gifts that you can give someone is the opportunity to help you. And so I still remember the day Allie connected me with you in that three-way. And it was, you know, something like Arun's about to transition. Uh, he's thinking of getting in the coaching space. You know, maybe you could help him. I remember reading that and feeling so honored, you know. And, and even at the time, I didn't, you know, I was still setting up my business. So I was like, you know, or I don't know if I can help him, but I was so eager to. And that's kind of what I've learned these last few years is that people want to help a lot more than we realize. And especially in, in the military community, right? I would argue that the majority of people who signed the same dotted line to serve and protect this country made that sacrifice and were willing to do whatever it took for, for the guy or girl that was next to them. And I don't think that ends after you, you come out of the military. I think that that's something I mean, I, I think it's a biological need, to be honest. I think we all have the need to contribute and help in some way. And especially somebody who's had a similar experience 
or somebody who's about to go through a transition that I already went through and I already know the pains and heartaches, maybe not the same ones that you had, Yeah. but they're all very similar. You know, we yeah. all get caught in our own egos at times. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was, it was really just understanding and accepting that as much as I said, yes, nobody's going to come and save you. The other part of that is that there are a shit ton of people who do want to help you. And maybe you message 10 people and four or five, six of them ghost you or don't say anything back, but focus on the ones who do want to help you. And I, you know, it's a cliche, but um, even in, in anything else that we do, right? Not everything's going to work out. I, I talked to five different therapists before I landed on the right one because I didn't have faith that they could help me. Mm-hmm. Same thing with leadership. We've had how many, you and I have had so many bad leaders that didn't want to help us, but we remember the names of those who did. Oh yeah. And those are the ones who have really given me the hope that there's a lot of other people out there who do want to help. So it's just a matter of me tapping into that courage to ask for help. So you brought up, so that's a, that's a perfect segue. You brought up the good leaders and the bad leaders we've both had. And we've, and we, and I should say, you know, we connected on LinkedIn about a year ago now. And since then we talked maybe every week or two or text back and forth or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So um, a, a good example, at least for me in my experience of the, the positive side of social media and the attempt to network, right. And trying to connect to people, right. You, you really can connect to real human beings. Um, but what, so we've talked about the good leaders and the bad leaders. You and I both have names that are forever etched in our minds. I've, I've got names of the bad ones too, the examples that I don't want to follow, but you're right. I definitely have the ones that I do foremost in my mind. What, what makes an effective leader now to you, given everything you've been through? Um, and what do you, what do you look for in yourself and what do you look for in someone else who is asking to lead or asking to take on that kind of responsibility? What's and clearly this answer evolves over time, right? So this is simply what, what do you think now? Yeah. Is this kind of like um, what you were talking about on your podcast yesterday about what's, what's our individual philosophy on a good leader? <laughs> Yeah. If you, yeah. If you want to take it down that road, I, I still don't like asking it that way, but yeah. Cause what I texted you, you my answer last night. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, you did. That's right. Well, so of course you have the freedom to change your answer or to yeah. augment it as you see fit, but yeah, yeah. what is your leadership philosophy? And I love the way you broke that down too. In oh, that yeah, episode I about, about that. how That's it's, right <laughs> how it's changing. Yeah. So I, I wrote to you lead by example. Mm-hmm. And the reason I wrote that is because I look back on all the leaders that I've had in my entire life, but I'll stick exclusively to the military because there's a handful of guys and girls who had my respect and my trust and my full, my full buy-in. If they said, you know, we need to do whatever, build 50 sandbags or do some shitty task. There was no question I was going to do it for them. And those leaders, the one thing that they had in common is 
they would, they were never afraid to get in the fight with me. And, and it's yeah. maybe not the right word, get in the fight, but get their hands dirty. Right. And that's something I've, I've done my entire life. I like to think, um, I never want to tell somebody do this. And then it's something that something I wouldn't do myself or I haven't done before, you know, because that's just, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of people who do that and maybe their, their motivation is, is power or, or whatever, but the people who I feel I've inspired the most were the ones who saw something that I did and then was like, huh, well, shit, if Joey's doing it, then maybe I can do it too. And so I always say actions speak louder than words. Um, you know, I was, I was very open on my previous podcast episode about how sometimes I have a hard time being assertive and, you know, telling people what to do, telling stories. And a lot of that is because playing sports growing up, you know, I, I look back a lot to my childhood and I was never the loud guy. I was never um, the guy who was like, you know, screaming at everybody to motivate them. Yeah. It was like, you know, I was, I always took a lot of pride in going out there and working my hardest. And, you know, it's kind of a tangent, but I was a huge Derek Jeter fan growing up. I was nine years old when he debuted for the Yankees. Yeah. And, and, and I watched this guy just, he wasn't the loudest guy. He didn't have to yell at you, but everybody around him, similar to Tom Brady, had respect for him. And it was from what I gather, it's because these guys are always willing to do the hard work. They're always willing to empathize something else I'm very big on, you know, getting to know your people, understanding who they are and what motivates them, what they do in their personal life. You know, that builds respect and, uh, something it's kind of a through line. Whenever I used to do my, my talks at different schools, I would always say, if you want to get respect, you got to give respect. And I think a lot of leaders would benefit from hearing that. Like you're not going to be seen as weak when you empathize. Everybody hears empathy and they think that means they're going to be seen as weak or too yeah, soft. Yeah, it's all squishy and all. Yeah, yeah. It's bullshit. It's bullshit because there's a time and place to be more aggressive, right? Tom Brady has a nickname in the fourth quarter. They call him Psycho Tom. And I've never heard that before. <laughs> you never heard that? I've um, never heard that before. Yeah. So, and I always, I use but, this as a, a silly analogy, but you know, if it's the fourth quarter of a football game and it's a, your, your team's down by three points, you might not want somebody who's there like empathizing with you or telling you it's going to be all right. You want somebody who's taking charge and taking, taking command, telling you where you got to be. So I always like to, whenever I talk about empathy, I'm not saying just be a softy and, you know, be somebody who just is a really good listener all the time. Sometimes you do need to step into that, that shadow, right? Especially in high stress situations. But uh, like I said, the leading by example right now, that's, that's my philosophy. But that's okay. So that, I mean, so that all makes sense, but I think, wouldn't it be empathy? Wouldn't it still be empathy if, so down by three, whatever, 25 seconds left and, and we're, I can't come up with these things on the fly, but down by three, 25 seconds left, we're in their territory and we've got a shot at it. 
not just tying, but winning the game, right? So the decision is, yeah, the decision is go for the pass and win. Yep. Forget about the field goal just to tie. Isn't it still empathy if Tom Brady or whoever it is, they're not being consoling. Now they're kicking me in the ass because that's what I need at the, in the moment. Mm. Like it, it seems like somebody like that is smart enough to know that when we're in this position and if we have a relationship and we've been in practice all year and he's gotten to know me and he's the captain and he's the captain for a reason, um, you know, then he realizes with 20 seconds left and we're sitting on their 40 and it's third down and he's got the arm for it, but I'm one of the few receivers who's going to be in a position to catch it. What I need in that moment is not, okay, dude, you know, if, if you don't make it, it's okay. Mm-hmm. But better luck. No, he'll be like, get your ass on the line. I'm throwing it to you. This is our one shot. So get your head out of your ass. Yeah. Which I know not everybody would respond to that. I, I do because it's just hard for me when I feel like someone's dancing around it. But if this guy's in my face and if, if he's nicknamed Psycho Tom and he's like, get your head out of your ass and get on the line because it's coming to you, dude. And we have yes. 15 seconds. We don't have two shots at this. I don't know. I still think that's empathy, but, but we have, you're right. We have a tendency. We hear words like that. It sounds like sympathy. And so it sounds like I've just got my arm around you and we're hugging, but I don't know that that's the whole picture. Yeah, man, you're, I think I, I think I agree with you. You know, like if you're saying, let's go guys, I believe in you, Arun, I believe we can do this, you know, because I know you, I know what you're capable of. I know your talents and you've worked your ass off this year to get where you're at. So let's fucking go. I think that is to your point. That's a form of empathy as, as much as it might be a little bit more aggressive. It's sometimes that's what's needed. And uh, that's a great point, man. I'm really glad you, you said that because sometimes I do think there's a little bit of fear that's being used there, but I think, the good leaders are the ones who, even if the play doesn't go right or you don't score the winning touchdown, as long as you put in the effort and you believed in yourself that moment and gave it your all, that leader, regardless of the outcome, is going to come up to you and, and still put his arm around you and say, hey, man, we gave it our best shot. Yeah. And that's, that's good enough. And that's empathy. So what's, so what's next for you? What are you working on? What are you looking ahead toward? Um, it's 2021 and we're finally, we're talking about COVID almost as if it's in the rearview mirror. Yeah. Right. A lot of stuff is getting back to normal. I don't know what Jersey's like in Ohio. We're pretty much back to normal. We don't <laughs> see masks much. We're all getting back to gatherings at the house. What's, so what's next for you now that we're getting back to real life? That's a great question, man. And I, I wish I had a clear answer. Uh, so before COVID happened in March of 2020, I was, I was back in school as a business major. I graduated in May of 2020. And my goal before that was my whole business model was to do a lot of speaking engagements, which I was doing pre, pre-COVID, speaking at schools, um, different universities, talking to young people about the shit that they needed to know about leadership, setting goals for yourself, interpersonal communication. And COVID kind of threw me into a panic 
because I knew that I had to convert my whole business model to online coaching, which works. And I had a little bit of success with it, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't burn myself out more than I enjoyed the process. And I kind of took a break from, from coaching the last three or four months just to focus on the podcast. I'd saved up enough money to where, okay, Joe, let's, let's get clear on our vision once again. And so I'm literally rethinking everything um, with, especially with masks coming off here in New Jersey of possibly starting to do more speaking engagements. I'm not sure how yet. And I'm not sure what it's going to look like, but I know that this is the stuff that I'm passionate about. And, you know, it's, I'm very, I'm a big advocate for the mental health space. And, and we talked about this before about coming up with actual solutions as opposed to just talking about something like, you know, a lot of people um, want to post about mental health awareness and the veteran suicide rate. And it's all with good intentions. And I used to do the same thing, the 22 push-up challenge and all that. But now I'm a lot more solution focused. And I really believe that with everything that's going on in America, with how divided we are, with how disconnected so many young people are, you know, and how, quite frankly, how lonely a lot of people are. Um, I blame two things for that. I blame social media. I blame actually three things. Social media has done a great job at dividing us, even though it can lead to some really great connections. I think a lot of people like to stay in their own little uh, eco chamber. Yeah, yeah. And so I think it's that, COVID and poor leadership. I think that if there was more leaders, and I'm talking about teachers, um, CEOs, supervisors, military leaders, if there was more leaders who were, as we talked about before, teaching kids how to communicate, how to have actual conversations, especially the hard ones, especially when you need help with something, right? You need to know how to ask and you need to not be so afraid, which is something that I've learned, you know, the hard way. Um, I've been very stubborn at times and maybe a little too proud to ask for help with things mm -hmm. that I'm doing. Yeah. And that was, that was my goal at the beginning of the year. I said, 2021 is going to be the year of strategic partnerships where Joey doesn't just do everything by himself anymore because that's not fun. You know, I like working on teams. I like helping others doing things in person, you know? Um, so I don't know. I, I don't have a clear cut answer for you, Arun, but I have a lot of faith that it's going to involve doing in-person events again. Yeah. Yeah, I know a lot of people, I mean, I'm even back and forth on, it's it's great to have the flexibility to work remote and to do things like this on Zoom. You're in Jersey, I'm in Ohio. So, you know, Zoom offers a clear solution to that. But yeah, I think we took a lot of what the in-person environment gave us for granted. We took for granted a lot of what we got from that until we lost it. And then I, I think I think we just have to, like anything else, it's not all or nothing, right? So the freedom to work remote is great for a lot of people, myself included. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean I never want to go back into the office. 
yeah. or see people or talk to people, or in your case, you speaking in person is way different than doing a virtual. Did you ever do speaking virtually? Cause I know people who have, and I just couldn't wrap my head around how much engagement you would get in that type of thing. Doing I never, zoom or whatever. I, I did do a few webinars in the past about how to build your business on social media, but never more than like five or 10 people at a time. They were kind of like workshops. Yeah. Which were actually a lot of fun. They were only an hour long and stuff like that. I wouldn't mind doing more as well. But, um, and then the military round table, I forgot I did that yeah. for a little bit. That's not really speaking as much as it is connecting people. And that's really what I'm passionate about, man, is, you know, showing people that as, you know, as much as you, nobody's going to come and save you. Like you need people a lot more than you realize and social media and working from home works for a lot of people. But at the same time, if you're not having your, your actual physiological needs met to, to be around somebody who truly hears you and truly feels and understands what, what's going on. Like you and I, Rune, we every time I talk with you, I know that you're actively listening to everything I say. And I appreciate that so much. And you're giving me your feedback and you're asserting your opinion. And I love it. But I know that if we were sitting together on this couch and having this conversation for me, it would just, I don't know. I feel like I would, I would feel a lot better. As crazy as that sounds. I know you're married. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, it's, um, that, no, that's absolutely true. In person is always the best way to talk about or to talk. Yeah. It's always better in person. And if, if you ask anybody who's a military veteran, what's the number one thing you miss about the military? It's always the people. Mm -hmm. It's always sitting at a gate shack for 12 hours. At, at least guys I talked to in my career field, just sitting there for 10, 12 hours talking about random nonsense, just shit that comes out, you know, and just having somebody who's, who's there with you, not to tell you if you're right or wrong, but just to, to be there. I really think that's, the solution to a lot of people's problems in this country right now is they're not, they're not really being heard and understood. That's Saturday night in the missile field. Two of you, 80 feet down, nobody's doing work upstairs on the surface uh, on Saturday night. So it's just you two and your thoughts and the TV, right? We have TV, but you're not going to watch, believe it or not, you're not going to watch TV for 12, 24 straight hours. Um, so actually, okay, so that was, I was going to wrap it up there, but I do have one more question because you mentioned the military roundtable and I keep mm -hmm. meaning to ask you this. So I might as well ask you on air. Um, is, are, are you, would you do that again? Have you been doing it? And, and I have, because the Friday night time, if that's what you're talking about, mm -hmm. was always tough for me. And I, and I felt bad, in fact, because I got a lot of value out of the times that I went, but then I didn't notice it on posts and it didn't come up. So. Mm -hmm. where did that go? Why'd you stop? Or did folks just fizzle away or what? No. Um, I stopped doing that right around the holidays, right around November, 2020, I came down with the COVID and, um, between that and I had just started going to therapy at the time for some trauma, which I had yeah. not acknowledged. So it was something. And also I, I should say, I, completely switched up my sleep schedule. I started going to bed at like eight o'clock and waking up super early, which oh, I've, yeah. I've been doing consistently, but now, man, it's not something 
I just wanted to stop doing. It was something that um, I just realized I had so many different things going on and I would not be opposed to restarting it uh, at some point. I think, especially if it was with somebody who, you know, going back to strategic partnerships, I was doing a lot of that on my own. I was the one who was running it and sending the email reminders to everybody. Yeah. But if, if I were to have other vets who, and I'm sure I could, cause there was a lot of guys and girls who messaged me after who want to keep doing it. And I felt really bad. And maybe that, that was a missed opportunity for me as a leader to be like, Hey, you know, if, if you help me set up some stuff with the emails and build a team, yeah, build a team, man. Okay. So we need, so we'll talk after the recording, after the show's done, because I think that was helpful for a lot of people. And I mean, the, the times and whatnot can always flex or, or maybe we can come up with something where we have yeah. multiple sessions in a week and you just go to one, right. So that we can accommodate folks. Cause you had folks on active duty going. And I think yep. to what we were talking about earlier, I'm at the point where I don't think it's ever too early to think transition because when you start talking about three years out on a four year enlistment, that's just about your whole time. But I honestly think it's a mistake at least on the officer side, when you get in, the assumption is you're making a career out of it, which I guess is easy to assume because there's so there's fewer of us, there's fewer officers than there are enlisted members. And that makes sense. But even on the officer side, right, the, the, the military is not big enough to accommodate everybody. Attrition is natural. Yeah. And a lot of people don't assume they're going to make a career. But then when you get in, the institution makes you think that that's the only goal you can have. So mm-hmm. it, entering the military is not about finding a career necessarily. It's, it's answering a call like you did. A a lot of people get in for financial reasons for educational support, right? Which I don't think there's nothing wrong with that, Mm -hmm. but you get in, you serve honorably, you qualify for the GI bill. Maybe you get some tuition assistance or you get some really cool training Mm -hmm. and then you move on ideally with more skills than you had before. I don't know that there's anything wrong with that, but you should go in knowing you're going to get out. And I just, I don't know. I thought it was, it was useful to meet other folks all across the spectrum of age and whatnot dealing with it. Cause we're all on an Island until we realize there's no water. Yeah, man. I love it. So, well, you got, you got any last thoughts? We've been going, we're almost to two hours. Oh shit. So, uh, yeah, before we, we both move on with our days, what else you got for the audience or anything else we, you want to share? I think we covered just about everything, man. I think um, just uh, this is another cliche, but you guys know I'm full of them at this point. Just be honest with yourself. Uh, a big influencer of mine the last few years who's helped me in a lot of ways is Dr. Jordan Peterson. And he wrote an amazing mm-hmm. book called 12 rules for life. And one of the rules that sticks with me the most and that I'm constantly breaking and then, you know, reminding myself is tell the truth or at least don't lie. So if something's, and I'm not just talking about with other people, I'm talking about with yourself. If something's not working or you're not happy about something in your personal life, professional life, whatever, just fucking own it. Just say it because you can't fix a problem until you know what it is. Yep. Right. So that would be the last thing I said. Don't be afraid to to be vulnerable and to go within. And 
it's scary at times, you know, when you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see, but I promise you, it's something you're not alone with your struggles. We've all dealt with some adversity. It's part of the human experience, which quite frankly, I'm learning more and more to enjoy, but that's another conversation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, man, thank you. Arun, I, I just want to say real quick, I'm so proud of you for not just everything you've done the last year for your transition, but having the balls to start this podcast, to start a coaching business, to get into financial advising. You know, you're, I think that's why we connect so well is you're so ambitious and it seems like you're, you're not content with just settling with one thing. And the fact that you're doing it while raising a family um, is, is inspiring, dude. Uh, I, I appreciate it. It's um, I, I, tend to get I, I can't stay in one spot mentally for a long time but it's also scary as shit so we'll 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 see what happens a year from now as as i keep all these balls in the air but uh, i've i've got a very supportive loving wife and two boys that are um i would say loving supportive is kind of weird when they're two and a half and eight months so they don't really know what that means yet but um as as long as we're all home for dinner and they're still excited to see me i think i'm i'm winning so yeah thanks a lot for coming on man i had a blast talking to you uh it's always a good conversation you definitely help me every time we talk and you ask me questions that maybe i'm not willing to ask myself but that i need to ask so uh and hopefully we'll do this again soon we'll check in with you and see Absolutely. what's going on in your world cool cool beans man all right dude thanks a lot take care everybody thanks for listening uh, if this show gives you any amount of value, if Joey's input was useful for you, I can promise you it's useful for someone else. Subscribe, share, give it a like wherever you find it, and we will talk to you later on. Well, hey guys. So I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope it was of value to you. I hope you learned something. I certainly learned a lot from talking with Joey. Um, we have plenty more that we can talk about, and I certainly hope he's got the time and is willing to come back on the show in the future. Uh, let us know what you think. Ask at the lastquestion.blog. Um, this is an enabled word production, uh, and we are doing a lot more. I am working on doing a lot more with this podcast, trying to reach a, a larger audience, and, and interested absolutely in what you guys think, not just of the guests, not just of the content, but what are the important questions you think we should be asking of ourselves and of each other when it comes to building a better future. There's a whole lot of learning left to do. And the more you know, the more you realize how little you know. I absolutely believe that. And uh, so that's why I strive to learn something new every day. That's why I read the way I do. And that's why I love talking to people um, in this, using this medium primarily. So been great being with you. Hope you enjoyed the show. Give it a like, share it. Let us know what you think through the reviews and uh, absolutely subscribe. If you're just testing this out, listen to as many episodes as you like. Give it uh, a good dry run, a good test drive, and uh, let me know. Other than that, folks, take a breath of fresh air today. Hug a loved one. Let your friends know how important they are to you. And then get after it and lead well. We'll talk to you soon.